0: Gracious God, grant that the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, all that we offer to you now in this time of praise and reflection, of renewal in your spirit, that they may be for us those pearls of wisdom, that font of hope, the foundation of a new life in Christ. Amen. First lesson this morning comes from Uh, The letter to the Hebrews, this is an anonymous letter. We don't know the name of the author. We don't know exactly uh, who the audience was. Uh, It's thought by most scholars that this is a letter written to a congregation of early Christians, -Christians, proto-Christians, sometime around the year 70. Uh, The year 70 is a seminal date in the history of Judaism and Christianity because it's in the year 70 that the Roman Empire having grown weary of the constant rebelliousness and low-level rioting that carried on in Judea for about 50 years, finally lost their patience and decided to crush any Jewish opposition by essentially eliminating a Jewish society, um, leveled the city of Jerusalem, tore down uh, the temple, and uh, expelled the Jews uh, from the city and Judea. This is the great diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews across the face of the Mediterranean. It's a great crisis uh, for Christianity because the early Christians, the proto-Christians, were Jews themselves. Um, A great crisis, obviously, for Judaism because the center of their religious life uh, at the temple, the sacrificial system um, set forth in the books of Moses is obviously obliterated. We think that it's sometime just before or after, because there are many, many references. In fact, the entire book is predicated on the ideas uh, that are part and parcel of the sacrificial system in the temple, the theology of sacrifice, which was uh, the heart of of the temple worship. And drawing on those sacrifices, either lost or soon to be lost because of the destruction, The writer is uh, very eager to instruct these proto-Christians, these early Christians, in how they can remain fast and sure and confident in the face of the persecution which has already begun um, under the Roman Empire. Remember, for the first two to three hundred years of our history, uh, to become a Christian, uh, to follow Jesus in your daily life, was to undertake a, a very serious journey. Um, in which uh, your life would often be forfeit. Uh, The Romans would not only persecute you in your daily living, but often uh, Christians, of course, uh, would be killed most spectacularly and in our minds as um, sacrifice to the animals in the great Colosseum uh, in Rome and elsewhere. The first part of the fourth chapter is this early sermon, as it were, you know, telling the these early followers of Jesus, to remain firm and strong um, in their faith. And then the concluding verses go like this. Indeed, the word of God is living and active. This is a, um, an essential part of Jewish and Christian theology, that the word of God is not static, not set, um, it's not dead but it's dynamic, it's evolving, it's moving, it's active in the world. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before this one, no creature is hidden, but we all stand naked like babes, laid bare, to the eyes of the one in whom we render our life's work. A sword double-edged that pierces, not for the purpose of damage or destruction, but a sword that pierces to separate, in a sense, the truth from the false, that goes to the heart of the matter, that makes us confident that we are seen fully just as we are naked like a baby before God. None of of the uh, structures that we construct to hide behind um, in our daily lives, the persona that we project onto the world, but our truest selves. He goes on. Since, we think he, since then, the author writes, we have a great high priest. Now this is... The idea in Hebrew related to the temple worship, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year, into the place where the Ark of the Covenant sat, upon which it was believed in earliest days, upon which God sat. Most of our knowledge about the Ark of the Covenant, I think, comes from the Raiders of the last Ark, <laughs> which is actually not biblical. Just. Let me just say, anyway, okay. It's not, no, it's not biblical, right? Some of us were just recently in uh, Disney World. Did you see the Raiders of the Locks show? Yes? Not doing it right now. It's so sad. Oh no, the button I have on this morning, just brought back for me. She was in, um, the Disney, in, Disney, in Disney World, and uh, this is from, um, it's an elephant, which, and I love elephants, so she put it on my stole for me this morning. Thank you very much for thinking of me. She knows I love elephants. So, this, this high priest that goes into the Holy of Holies, Jesus is the high priest that doesn't go into the Holy of Holies. Jesus is the high priest who goes into the heavens. So, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Don't give up. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, don't you love this double negative? It's a little confusing. Since we don't have a high priest who's unable, or since we have a high priest who can sympathize with us, we have in, who has been tested in every respect as we have been, and yet is without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, we no longer need to fear to approach the throne of grace. In the temple in Jerusalem, only the high priest would go to this throne. But we have no fear to go to this throne of grace because the love of God is not restricted and not withheld, but is freely available to all who will come. It's not something that has to be earned by making a sacrifice or doing something or paying a price. But the love of God is given because God loves us. It's hard for us to believe that to be true, but it's true that God loves us just as we are. God doesn't want you to be anybody else but who you are. God wants you to be your truest self. What gets us in trouble, I think, is when we try to be somebody else. but pretend to the world that we're somebody else. We'll create this persona by which we hope we can hide from the world. But in fact, God just wants us to be naked like a baby and stand and be fully known and in that state to come with boldness. Not with fear, not with trembling, not with insecurity, not ambivalently, not hedging our bets, but go boldly to the throne of grace. And so from Mark's gospel... In the 10th chapter, this is our seventh week in the lectionary readings, 12 weeks in all, uh, recounting the story in Mark's Gospel of Jesus, his journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John as well, all tell about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. But Mark in particular, um, and Luke, um, focus on Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem very explicitly, chronologically, geographically, correctly, the places that he goes to, he traverses day by day, week by week, month by month, on his way to Jerusalem. Very much very centered on the idea that he's going someplace to accomplish a particular task. He's not wandering around the wilderness, willy-nilly, not really sure what's going to come next. He travels with a purpose. He has a goal in mind. He goes to Jerusalem with the intent of provoking the crisis which will result in his crucifixion and then in his resurrection. The crucifixion the resurrection are not happenstance, but are in fact the purpose for which Jesus traveled. This particular reading uh, begins with the words, Jesus is on the way. It doesn't say to Jerusalem, but he was on the way. It's very clear as you read the whole gospel, that's where he's headed. Earliest Christians were known as followers of the way. Earliest Christians, the followers of Jesus, and then who followed in the next two generations were not called Christians. The term Christian didn't occur for maybe another 30, 40 years and was originally an epithet. It was an insult. Um, it's equivalent to gypsy, instead of talking about the Roma people. Gypsy is a terrible word. It's an epithet. Christians, the term Christian, was originally those foolish Christians who follow this Nazareth carpenter, who they say was killed and raised from the They're stupid. So they're not really, they're not Christians yet, but they're followers of the way, It's what they're called in the Book of Acts. Christianity is really not, in its its essence, is not a body of belief. This is the biggest mistake we've made in the last 500 years, ever since the Reformation. And I'm a child of the Reformation. We're all children of the Reformation. Uh, This seminally important moment in human history, not just in our religion. but The whole focus on the definition of theological terms has led us away from the deep understanding that Christianity is not about what you believe. Christianity is about what you do. Find me the place in the Gospels where Jesus says to somebody, Tell me, what do you believe? And then, come and follow me. Go ahead, find it, look it up, I'll give you five minutes. I'll give you $5,000 when you come to me with the answer. He doesn't say it. He never asks them, what do you believe, and then you can come with me. No, what does he say to them? Come, follow me. So Christianity is not a set of beliefs. The beliefs are important because they inform what we do. Christianity is about a way of life. I saw a thing this week on the interweb, and it said that um, atheism, the principal cause of atheism in the world today, are Christians who go to the church and say one thing and leave the church and do another. Right? Okay. Okay. So in the 10th uh, chapter of uh, the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was on his way, and a man ran up and knelt before him and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now the man runs up to him and throws himself on his knees. So the question is Deeply felt, I mean, he feels some deep trouble about this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Throwing themselves on their knees is what people do when they're blind or they're lepers or they can't walk. They, They throw themselves at Jesus' feet. But here, just ask a question. He throws himself on the feet, on his knees. But what must I do to inherit eternal life? In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, is the only place where the evangelist uses the term eternal life. More often, he uses the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. Kingdom, eternal life, is the term that John, the evangelist John, prefers. All of them refer to the reign of God, the presence of God, living in the light and the fullness of the presence of God. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus said to him, well, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, commit adultery, you shall not steal or bear false witness. You shall not defraud, honor your father and your mother. The young man said to Jesus, teacher, rabbi, I have kept all these since my youth. He thinks, okay, I've kept all the commandments. I'm good. I've ticked all the boxes. I've filled out the menu. I'm a morally upright person. I'm a person of virtue, of standing in the community. I'm wealthy and respected because I'm wealthy. You know, wealthy people are respected and poor people are disrespected. Not just in the first century, but in our life. Wealthy people are worshipped. Wealth is worshipped in our world. Poor people are despised and forgotten and cast to the side because at a very deep level, pre-conscious or unconscious level, we think that wealth is a symbol of having been blessed by God and poverty is a symptom of having been condemned or forgotten or despised by God. So the young man thinks, I'm good. He said, I've done these things all my life. And then... Jesus looked him in the eyes and loved him. Looked him in the eyes, in the Greek, and believes us. You know when you look somebody in the eyes, I mean really look somebody in the eyes, you don't look at their forehead or the point of their nose, but you look somebody in the eyes and you really communicate and you feel like you're seeing the inner person, like that double edged sword that sees through to the heart of the matter you know that separates the the gold from the dross the truth from the from the false that 's what he does. He looks at him not with judgment but in the Greek agapasane with love, agapoane, that unconditional love, that heavenly love, that divine love that that love that doesn't count, or judge, or evaluate, that just simply loves He looks him in the eye and loves him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Well, this sounds ridiculous. He's as wealthy as Croesus. He's obviously a morally or upright person. You lack one thing. Go and sell what you own and give your money to the poor and then you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he was shocked, went away grieving for he had many possessions. This is the only time in all of the gospel stories where Jesus says to somebody, come and follow me, and they don't come. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. That's your treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. The young man wants it all. He wants his cake and he wants to eat it too. Because he thinks that he is self-reliant that his wealth is his own and that his rectitude, his moral rectitude, is his own. He is independent and not open to dependence upon God. So he goes away because he can't give up his goodies. He says he wants eternal life, but what he really wants is to keep his goodies And have eternal life too. But Jesus knows he can't enter into that eternal life because of his affection for and addiction to and desire for maintaining his material wealth and existence. So Jesus looked around and he said to the disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. And Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded. They said to one another, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, well, for mortals, it's impossible. Yes, but for God, no, no, for God all things are possible. Now, volumes of ink have been spelled, spilled, spelled, spilled, spilled, spilled in commentators' attempts to explain away this hyperbolic statement of Jesus that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter into the kingdom of God. It is what it is. Jesus uses hyperbole to make his point. Let the dead bury the dead, he says another time. He uses hyperbole to make his point, to get people to wake up. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem not to tweak the system and to fix a few things that are broken, to make some kind of moderate adjustment in the distorted social order, in political order, in economic life in which he lived, He goes to Jerusalem, not to tweak, but to turn over. Not just the tables in the temple, where the money changers sit, but to turn over the entire system. Turn it upside down and inside out, backward and forward and over again. Jesus comes to change the world, so that we'll start living the way God calls us to live. To love each other in the way that God loves us. The problem that the young person has is that he just wants everything to go along just as it is without thinking about changing anything that might cause him discomfort. That's what makes it impossible for him to give up his wealth because he's standing back. He won't allow himself to be subsumed by and taken over by and filled then, therefore, by the presence of God. To find a true liberty, true freedom based not on his wealth, which is passing and fickle. You know, we think we own lots of stuff. We don't own anything. We're just renting things while we're here. You know? You cannot, you, you, you cannot take it with you. God has entrusted us with our material wealth so that we might use it for the common good. Now, Jesus is not saying... This is not a a universal dictum that he gives to everybody. He doesn't, doesn't teach this to the crowd, doesn't teach it to his disciples, Peter and John and the rest of them, who have left everything and come to follow him. But it is clear that the early Christians took this idea about communalism, communitarian living, communism in the technical sense of the term, very seriously for the first two centuries. In the second chapter of the book of Acts, it says very clearly The disciples held everything in common. Those who held um, real property liquidated it and gave it to the common good, and it was distributed to the people who were poor. This is an ancient practice of the church, and we know it was carried on for the first two centuries because the Didache, which is this wonderful document we have from the second century, Didache from the Greek didactic, Didact is to teach didactic. It's a teaching document. It's a manual for Christians. In the Didache, it's very clear that the early Christians lived a communitarian life. They sold what they had and distributed to all those who had need. So, we are called to do this because we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. We are no longer separated from God. There's no longer a gulf that exists between us. But we are invited in the ministry of Christ, who turns everything upside down, to approach boldly and thereby follow Jesus in remaking the world in a remarkably different way. Not just tweaking the system, but overturning the forces of injustice and thereby to establish for the reign of justice and of peace. It's quite a mandate for us to consider um, how do I, how do you, how do all of us, how do we view our material being and how do we use that um, for the ends of God? Let us do so Trusting fully that we may approach the throne of grace, not with trembling hearts, but boldly and with confidence. Amen.